Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Bob Mendelson, and this is the Bob's Your Uncle podcast. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5, today featuring Dr. Deborah Fuller from the University of Washington, a virologist talking about vaccines, and the big question, whom do you trust? Stay tuned. You can now find us and comment to us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us what matters to you, what triggers your joy, what bothers you in the world. Let us know. We'll see where the spirit leads us. Wherever you are just now, whether you're out for your evening constitutional, or you're here in Australia, or back in the United States with friends, or all by yourself with your headset on, hey, wherever you are, thanks for joining us these 18 minutes. Of note, the opinions are strictly my own and those of my guests. On this date in history, the 17th of October, in 1854, the British and French troops began the siege of Sevastopol during the Crimean War. In 1867, after much opposition, a deal negotiated by U.S. Secretary of State William Seward for the U.S. purchase of the Russian colony of Alaska was approved, and on this day, the U.S. flag was flown over the capital, Sitka. In 1956, the world's first industrial-scale commercial nuclear power plant was opened by Queen Elizabeth II in the UK. Finally, in aviation history in 1913, in the worst air disaster up to that date, German Zeppelin L-2 exploded in midair, 600 feet over the city of Johannesthal, Germany, killing all 28 passengers and crew on board. And that's the historical marker of the week. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Deborah Fuller, Professor of Microbiology at the University of Washington, Associate Director of Research at the Washington National Primate Research Center, Director of Virology and Immunology Corps. My, oh my, this is lots of titles. Thanks for being with us today on the Bob's Your Uncle podcast. I have so many questions to ask you. Can you, can you help my audience to understand this world of science? First, virology. What is that? And how did that specialized sector of medicine and research get your attention? Yeah, so virology is just really the study of viruses and uh, viruses on two different levels. Generally, 
uh, people study base the basic virus itself. How does it replicate? You know, how does it function? You know, what are viruses? Where are they? And then the other piece, and this is a half that I really focus on, is like when a virus gets into the body, how does that body respond to the virus? And how does that in, in turn impact our ability to either resist viruses or for viruses to win the war against our bodies and cause disease? So, and, and of course, my area of research in that in that sort of pivot is about vaccines and antivirals. So I'm going to always try to think of ways that I can give the the body an advantage over over the virus and the sort of arms race between virus versus versus body. That's a great way to call it. Hey, so many people thought, and dare I say, still think that viruses are political ploys by governments, and especially some folks who are interested in dismissing the government. Are there really such things as global viruses that are capable of massive pain and suffering? You know, first, first of all, viruses are not political, all right? So they they infect anybody, <laughs> the warm body. They don't care about where you're from. They don't recognize borders. They don't know, care what your race is. They will infect people and they will cause widespread disease if they can. So there is always still, uh, you know, a concern among scientists like myself and many others in my field of preparing for possible future pandemics like the one we experienced with COVID. And, you know, in fact, before COVID hit, I was, uh, my lab and many other labs were funded to develop strategies to um, quickly respond to an emerging pandemic. We thought the next one was going to be flu because we've always had flu pandemics, but there's a history of flu pandemics. The 1918 flu pandemic is a, is a really good example. It was one of the worst pandemics by a virus ever killing, you know, over half a billion people. And, uh, you know, and it was, it was just devastating. So, um, but there have been other pandemics. And so when, uh, when COVID hit, um, one of the reasons why we were so able to respond so quickly isn't because there was some sort of politics going on or some hocus pocus or anything. It really was because as scientists, we, um, we were anticipating this might happen and we were, prepared with this new technology called RNA vaccines to quickly respond to them. But, uh, you know, a lot of people think RNA vaccines are, you know, part of a, another government thing or something and that they were developed too fast. And so there must be something, you know, you know, fishy about them. But uh, the reality is that, you know, myself and many of my other colleagues who worked in work in this domain, um, you know, we started with uh, this concept over 30 years ago, and there had already been clinical trials of RNA vaccines for influenza and other sorts of diseases. So when COVID hit, it was just uh, really easy to pivot and quickly plug and play and rapidly respond to, to this pandemic. And, and thankfully, because prior to RNA vaccines, it would have taken typically four years, Would be, was the fastest vaccine ever developed. And this one uh, was developed much quicker and saved millions and millions of lives. And it was global. I, I think one of the things that surprised me, I was living here in Australia, but I kept watching global news. And one of the things in the US that surprised me in 2017, then President Trump withdrew the United States from UNESCO. And mm -hmm. in, in July, 2020, President Trump announced the U.S. would withdraw from the World Health Organization due to its being what he called China-centric. How yeah. 
how damaging were those unprecedented withdrawals vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic or continuing health in America? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things I, I teach a class in vaccines that I remember presenting to my students in the past year. Uh, imagine that you are heading up, you know, either in politics or science, or whatever, what would you have done differently? And I think one of the big things that we should have learned and hopefully will learn about this pandemic to prepare for the next one is that is that you can't isolate yourself. Uh, you know, when when, as I said, viruses, they don't recognize borders. They're going to uh, spread all over and they are going to cause disease everywhere. Uh, and we need to cooperate uh, and we need to to uh, save as many people as possible. One of the things that I think was was promising, you know, while there were political you know issues and governments, you know, sort of, you know, pushing and pulling on this subject. Um, one of the interesting things is that the scientists really kind of got together and uh, globally and uh, a very unusual thing that hadn't really happened before is that generally with science, when we kind of discover something new or we, um, you know, have a new finding in our lab, we, we take our time and we publish it. We kind of keep things close to our chest because we don't want somebody to scoop us, you know, or something like that. But, you know, scientists recognize that, you know, with the pandemic, that this this wasn't going to work, that we really had to share our ideas and our discoveries in real time. So, for example, it was really a, a Chinese scientist who actually just published the sequence for the virus on a social media site, you know, not through a, you know, traditional methods. And by doing that, that enabled, uh, you know, scientists worldwide to very quickly develop a diagnostic, you know, so that we could determine who was infected and not infected and, and you know, had a huge impact in being able to track the disease. And, and then that sequence was absolutely essential to design a vaccine. So, uh, you know, this sort of sharing among scientists was something that was somewhat unprecedented. And it just showed what is possible when people get together and, uh, you know, and, you know, break down the barriers, you know, that exist. Earlier this month, Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman shared the Nobel Prize for Medicine. The old expression in detective work to find a criminal was always follow the money. How does a research team like Carrico and Weissman, who led in the development of vaccines, especially in the pandemic, how did they stay above the fray of tainted research? That is, how do they avoid fact readjustment to gain the funding they require? How does any honest researcher avoid the pitfall of accommodation to the funders? Yeah, yeah. What a great question. You know, one of the things if we if we trace back in the history of, uh, and I call it globally nucleic acid vaccines, which includes RNA vaccines and DNA vaccines that I worked on. Um, if you look back in the history of how RNA vaccines got started, and DNA vaccines as well, is when we first came up with the concept over 30 years ago, and you know, uh, and Drew and Karika working on this as well, um, there was a lot of skepticism among the scientists in the field. And, it, you know, we all, you know, had difficulty in getting funding to support what, you know, seems like, you know, an idea that is new and, 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 uh, uh, innovative, but not yet tried and true. So there's always that sort of that game that you play. You got a new idea, um, but you have to first and foremost convince your peers 
um, that, you know, it's something worth pursuing because it's your peers actually that when you submit grant applications to get your work funded are going to review your grants. And, you know, if they're just like, oh, well, this is just too outrageous or, you know, maybe it's a nice little trick, but it will never really work in people. Those literally are the things that that people said at the beginning. And really what comes to it is that scientists, you know, uh, you know, when we're we're trained in something that so we constantly pursue our, our curiosity, right? And so that stands apart from the funding and, and the like. And so we're in the lab and we discover something uh, interesting and exciting that we think could potentially, you know, lead to a new piece of information or a new in intervention to protect against a disease we we pursue it obsessively you know and and often people would ask me for example well do you actually believe your thing will work and I said well if I don't believe it who will you know because I'm the one working on it so there's a lesson there that you know that scientists should when they believe in something and really are committed committed to their ideas that they they stick with it but there's the other piece where to be able to stick with things, you do need funding, right? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people, I, I worked in both biotech and, and academia and, and, you know, at one point, um, you know, somebody said, well, you know, in academia, you, you got more freedom to work on whatever you want. And I said, sure, freedom work on whatever you want, as long as you can get funding for it. <laughs> you know, so so there is that piece. And so we do play the funding game. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, our our funding in academia is funded through through uh, through like the National Institute of Health and other uh, funding organizations. And there is really a process uh, where you submit the grant application. And as I mentioned, it's peer reviewed and evaluated for the integrity of the science. And then there's sort of what, you know, what they call pay line that if you score really, really, really well, and we're talking like in the top, you know, one to 10%, of all grants, then you might get that funded. So, um, but the feedback then you get from your peers, you can kind of incorporate and try to resubmit it. And sometimes we can go, you know, one, two, three years of resubmitting our ideas over and over before we actually see the funding. So, and that's that's in academia, but that's also in, in you know, uh, the private sector. In that case, they're more interested in, you know, they have a product, they have to come up with a product. And so you have to center your, your um, concepts around, you know, a potential product. So you're always playing this sort of funding game, but alongside of that is always a sort of determination of the scientists not to give up, okay? If you believe in what you're doing, um, don't get discouraged if you don't get the funding for it right away. Just keep at it and keep working at, at uh, you know, generating, you know, sometimes you get pilot funding, little small amounts here and there to generate additional data that continues to support your idea until suddenly there's a pivot point in and you just get the funding to be able to do that. That's what that's what Drew and Carico did. You know, they stuck with it, even had against the naysayers. And uh, you know, look what we have today. We have an mRNA vaccine for COVID. I'm going to leave this right there. I'm going to put my finger on the tape, and next week you'll hear the second part of a two-part interview with Dr. Deborah Fuller from the University of Washington. She was the go-to person on Bloomberg Television during the pandemic, an amazing woman that my wife and I met when we were in Turkey. So uh, come back next week. Don't miss part two of this excellent interview.
What do you think about all this? Why don't you write me, bobmendo at aol.com, or comment on an Instagram or TikTok to me. I'd love to know what you're thinking. You know that the world has watched Israel, Hamas, this last 10 days or so with great grief. Some are boasting about the murders and brutality of desecrating human life, children, babies, grandparents. It's horrible to watch. I don't know how you're responding, but I'm feeling great grief. And even if someone goes in and blasts another rocket and wins a war, what cost? It's just painful to watch. Feel free to write me and let's communicate together about this. You know, every week we read a passage from the bestseller, the number one bestseller of all time, the Bible. And today's no different. From Micah chapter 7, we read, Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Don't forget to come back next week to hear part two of Dr. Fuller's interview. Until then, from me, Bob Mendelson, when things seem bleak or uncertain, look up to God. He's in his heaven, and Bob's your uncle. Shalom from Sydney.